0: everyone. This is Volts for February 3rd, 2023. Getting electric school buses in the hands of school districts. I am your host, David Roberts. One of my very favorite things in the world to talk about, second perhaps only to electric postal vehicles, is electric school buses. It's difficult to think of a more righteous cause than reducing air and noise pollution in direct proximity to the country's most sensitive lungs and ears. Currently, however, electric school buses still cost two to three times what their diesel competitors cost, which can be daunting for school districts with tight budgets. Electric buses pay themselves off over time through dramatically lower fuel and maintenance costs but the upfront costs of the transition are steep enough to scare away many administrators. My guest today runs a company called Highland Electric Fleets that is attempting to overcome that challenge with a new business model. Rather than purchase and maintain the buses themselves, school districts pay Highland a subscription fee, locked in for a 15-year contract, which covers the buses, a depot, charging infrastructure, scheduling, training, and ongoing maintenance and replacement of buses when required. In addition to saving most school districts money immediately, the subscription contract de-risks the transition to electric buses. That is about the best thing I can think of that someone could be doing these days, so I was eager to talk to Highland CEO Duncan McIntyre about the advantages of electric buses the challenges school districts face, and the problems solved by the subscription model. All right, with no further ado, uh, Duncan McIntyre, welcome to VOLTS. Thank you for coming. David, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Uh, VOLTS listeners are so interested in electric school buses, so I just have a a gazillion questions, so let's jump right into it. Um, Tell us, what are the advantages or benefits of an electric school bus over the current line of school buses, which as I understand it are
1: mostly diesel? That's right. They're mostly diesel a little over 80% today, Mm -hmm. but your question is about the advantages of electric I think the list is long, but I would highlight a few of the big ones. There's a clear benefit in emissions profile, just in the health of everyone who's operating or riding a bus. Mm. There's no tailpipe at all. And as a result, uh, they're very clean. Another big advantage is they just operate much cheaper. Mm. The fuel is a lot less expensive. There are very few moving parts compared to a diesel bus, and as a result, there's no oil changes. Uh, There's no exhaust filters. Uh, There's lots of things that just aren't on electric buses, and so operating is much less expensive.
0: And I don't want to get caught up in the health thing too early, but have there been—I'm trying to sort of um, conceive of the sort of magnitude of— The pollution reductions here, like have there been measurements or studies about the difference when an electric school bus replaces a diesel bus or are we too early to know for sure about that kind of stuff?
1: I think there have been plenty of studies about the health impacts of a diesel bus. And, you know, the the comparison is simply the health impacts of not having a diesel bus, since the electric format has literally no tailpipe and no uh, emissions profile at all. But the health uh, studies have been done by groups like American Lung Association, groups like that. And there's quite a few data points that look at reduction in uh, NOx and particulate matter specifically on Things like pediatric asthma, I would say that's one of the, the main studies that has taken place, but also tying the emissions associated with the diesel tailpipe to just other general health key indicators.
0: Yeah, one thing I would toss out too, because people always forget about this, but it is is noise pollution, which is, you know, the research on noise pollution is wild. I don't think people appreciate the, the effect that has. And all these kids are effectively sitting... Right next to a jet engine, more or less, <laughs> you know like and yeah. it, it's extremely loud, yeah, but the first question that comes up for everybody is they cost more, so what is the current cost differential between an electric school bus and a diesel school bus?
1: The electric school bus ranges from two hundred and seventy five thousand to three hundred and seventy five thousand dollars, really depending on the state you're in mm. and your question is about the differential. It's about $200,000 of differential on average. So it's a $200,000 premium to buy an
0: electric. That's not small. That's two or three X the cost. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's not small. Let's also talk about though, some of the other barriers other than cost. For a school district looking, you know, say if I'm in a school district, I, I, I have this wild idea. I want to replace all our diesel buses with electric buses. The cost of the buses themselves is not the only barrier or challenge I face. What are the other extra challenges that have to be overcome?
1: There's a few other buckets. One would be charging infrastructure. You need to establish your depot wherever you operate your buses today as an electrified depot. And that involves installing a whole bunch of new equipment, uh, running a, an interconnection to bring new power, you know, new, new electrical service into that depot. I would say that that's one big bucket of sort of a project that's required to get up and running. Uh, there's another piece that's all, all about training. Mm-hmm. Your workforce needs to be trained. Mechanics need to figure out how to work on these vehicles Your drivers need to know how to operate them and how to not just operate them, but how to be really comfortable with running them. Mm -hmm. And then there's an operating cadence of charging them. The fueling activity is a little bit different. And unlike diesel fuel with electric electricity, you you really want to pick and choose when you charge and how quickly you charge as it can result in lower or higher costs and uh, more reliability if done right.
0: And so that'll get into logistics, right? Like routes and the timing of routes and and these kind of things. Absolutely. That's right. And so these are all fairly substantial challenges. So what is the current market penetration here? Like what is, what is the base we're starting from? Are electric school buses anywhere or is it still an extremely marginal sort of market?
1: we're at an inflection point right now, uh, David, the, if you had asked me the question a year ago, I, I might've said electric buses made up 2% of the new hmm. school buses purchased in 2022. But in 2023, our perspective is it'll be closer to 10% of the new school buses purchased. And in 2024, will be 20 to 40 percent of the new school buses purchased. So it's changing very quickly right now.
0: You think we're on the the upswing of that S-curve in adoption?
1: We are. There's lots of reasons behind that. The federal government, as well as many states, have launched programs that are putting a lot of, uh, you know, fresh grant capital, as well as tax credits.
0: If I'm a school district now, what is the total kind of pool of assistance available to me. I know there's I think there's some stuff in IRA, I think there was some stuff in the infrastructure bill. I know there's state stuff. What is the sort of menu of assistance I can find?
1: Yeah, it's a tidal wave of assistance, David. So it takes <laughs> it takes a, a full-time person just to navigate it all, <laughs> but I would put it into a handful of big categories. One is the Clean School Bus Act, which is part of the infrastructure bill. Mm. And that's $5 billion that will roll out over five years. And are those just grants to buy school buses? Essentially, essentially just grants to assist in buying electric school buses. I I think the second big category is tax credits in the in the IRA. And the tax credit is not as big on an individual vehicle basis. But importantly, it can be bundled with other grants. And so it Mm. it. Provides support. And then many states have their own programs. California has had a program for years that's robust, really a grant program. Colorado has a new grant program. There are funding mechanisms everywhere from New York to Maryland to Virginia. And in many states, the totality of bundling a state program with a federal grant program and a tax credit actually make an electric school bus much less expensive than buying a new diesel. Mm. So there's a real cost advantage in some parts of the U.S. today.
0: Got it. So we're not just talking assistance. We're talking sufficient assistance at this point. More than
1: sufficient assistance, we would argue. <laughs> right. Okay. So we've got uh,
0: you know, a school district that has a dream of switching out fleets, but it is daunted by – the individual cost differential of the buses. It is daunted by this notion of infrastructure and how to build it and where to build it and how to run it. And it's daunted by basically, you know, being busy and not knowing, you know, not having time to study how to switch sort of the logistics of the of the fleet and the and the dispatching and everything. So into this uh, environment comes Highland. What is Your business model, how are you trying to address those barriers?
1: You've laid out the barriers quite well. The Highland business model is the finance engine behind driving the electric school bus movement. What we found is that while capital, the upfront capital, is a huge barrier, Mm -hmm. accessing the grants can help bridge that gap, but it's complex and on top of that, if you've got the grant money, it's still very difficult to figure out how to design the equipment, build it on time, build it reliably, and then ensure that you can operate reliably and within your budget. And so our business model is truly the finance engine. We pay for everything that's not grant funded from vehicles to equipment, and then we commit to operate that equipment and really support our customers, support the schools, by promising their fleet of electric buses will be fully fueled every morning for 15 years. 15 years. So just to make sure I have this right,
0: the school district pays basically a subscription fee to you, to Highland, and Highland buys the buses, builds the chargers, builds the depot, and trains staff and then <laughs> maintains, but d- does everything else, maintains the vehicles, repairs the vehicles if they need it or replaces them. Everything else Highland does. So the, the only thing that the school district is on the hook for is a subscription fee. Is that is that
1: right? From a financial standpoint, that is exactly right. And from a practical standpoint, you're spot on. The only nuance would be, Vehicles are often maintained by the district's uh, mechanics. So we will train them, and then we will pay for the maintenance. So the, the staff that's on the ground today is uh, typically very well-suited to actually do the repair work, and they're eager to get the training and be part of this
0: new industry. So financially, the school district can be confident that the subscription payment is the totality. They're not they're not gonna there's not other things that they haven't thought of that are gonna come impose costs on them.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. The school district knows it's predictable and reliable that our subscription fee is on par or less than what they spend to put a diesel fleet on the road. I'd like to get into a little bit of detail
0: about that. So you know, it seems like just financially, just comparing the costs is Is complicated. So I assume you've done this math and you've worked through this with some school districts. So what is the kind of cost of a subscription and how does that compare to, you know, if I'm a school district with this fleet of diesel school buses, the cost of switching the buses, building the infrastructure, training, maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. How does the total cost shake out?
1: Yeah, that that really is one of the key drivers behind this industry. I'm sure it's everyone's first question when, when you approach them. Totally. And in terms of your listeners, David, I would imagine solar is a good analogy. You know, the reasons why companies like Sunrun have done so well is because the average homeowner doesn't necessarily know that if they spend $25,000 on solar equipment, they don't know what they're going to get in return. Mm-hmm. And so a developer can take on the risks, place the capital, build the equipment, and, and and promise that the equipment will work. And the result is the homeowner pays 10 cents a kilowatt hour. And they know that's cheaper than the utility. We sort of do the same thing. We know what the capital costs are going to stack up to be on any given project. And they differ depending on the state that we're in. Illinois is different from Maryland.
0: Well, size of the school district too. I mean, presumably these bus fleets range quite widely in size and and scope, like geographical scope.
1: Absolutely. That's right. But we, we know what the cost is to build. And then we have our own perspective on what the ongoing operating costs will be. Electricity to fill the buses every night, you know, the software we need to run it, all the costs. And then the third big piece is the, what we know what the grants look like. And we need to organize our deployments so that upfront costs and downstream costs, you know, match up and that can result in a very affordable rate that the school district can pay us under our subscription But embedded in that is the risk that the equipment will perform and the risk of commodity prices. Right. And the risk of keeping the fleet maintained and running. And so it it lends itself very well to a business like Highland, where we have the scale to bring specialized teams to do all those things really well and deliver it as a, a bundle.
0: Right. So presumably the total cost of owning and maintaining the fleet for you is going to be somewhat lower than it would be for the school district, just because you have the procedures and the staff and the expertise and the relationships with vendors and et cetera, et cetera.
1: That's exactly right. There's economies of scale around every corner. And we're the largest buyer of electric school buses in the country today. We've got more of them on the road than anyone else. And As a result, we have scale in our operations that others don't have. And
0: so this subscription fee is locked in place for 15 years? That's correct. That's part of the guarantee? Like you will pay X amount each year for 15 years, no matter what happens to the cost of electricity or more supply chain problems or whatever
1: else? That's exactly right. And, you know, it's more like per mile, $2.50 a mile might be a contract we would sign. And we know they're going to be driving that bus about 10,000 miles a year, but it could be a little more, it could be a little less. Right. So a lot of risk. You're taking
0: on a lot of, the, a, a lot of risk cost. So can you guarantee, I'm sure you don't want to guarantee because uh, there are lots of different kinds of fleets and a lot of different kinds of places, but can you come close to guaranteeing a given school district that – the subscription fee they would pay you is lower total cost than going electric on their own. Like, is that something you can sort of uh, set in stone?
1: Well, the school would have to go through the details and come to the conclusion on our own, on their own. But in almost every case, we have found that we are cheaper than them doing this on their own. And I would highlight a couple reasons why. One is simply... We're a larger buyer than they are individually, and that gives us access to better pricing from all the equipment providers. A second reason is we have uh, invested in all of the technology needed that creates interoperability between the charging stations, the vehicles, the utility, and then the software management tools. And so we can roll that out very inexpensively at scale. And a third reason is there's a tax credit out there that has a lot more value in it for a private taxpaying entity that's structured in a way to monetize it. Mm. It's the same reason why most solar is privately owned as opposed to publicly owned. It's because there's tax credits that are tricky to monetize otherwise. And so there's a, a chunk of cash that we take off the top just for the tax credits that schools aren't aren't able to, um, sort out very easily. So that's one financial question. Is it cheaper than
0: doing this ourselves? But maybe the more difficult financial question is, could you go to a school district and say over the course of the 15 years of the contract, this will be cheaper than continuing to maintain
1: your existing diesel fleet? Can you promise that? I can't promise that because we don't know what diesel fuel prices will be two years from now, right. but um, we can make a very strong case that we will indeed be cheaper by quite a bit. It requires everyone to agree on some assumptions around diesel fuel pricing, but we have one other benefit, which is not only are we typically cheaper when you model it out, but We have no fluctuating costs to the school. Yes, And so that's a benefit. It's a big benefit. Yeah,
0: this is such a big benefit of renewable energy that I feel like manifests in a lot of different areas. It gets overlooked a lot of the time. Just risk of commodity price fluctuations is such a huge factor in these financial transactions, such a huge factor in national inflation risk. You know, it's like a huge factor in everything.
1: I totally agree. And the, the reality, David, is we can lock in electricity prices for many years into the future mm. by going into the competitive electricity markets. Right. And that's a lot more difficult to do with diesel fuel unless you want to pay a big risk premium. And so not only is are the kilowatt hours much cheaper, which just makes the totality of fueling costs lower, but electricity uh, has uh, more uh, management tools for companies like ours to go into the markets and uh, really lock in those prices. So we aren't taking 12 years of uh, completely naked risk either. We're just (laughs) bringing uh, a set of uh, strategies to bear to offer that to our customers. So
0: you can make a a strong case that'll it be cheaper over the 15 years. What about though, like, next year. If I you know, if I'm a school district and I and I have a, a sort of a set school bus budget, can I save money on the first year? Because it's always these upfront, as I'm sure you well know, it's always these upfront costs that are daunting to people and, and keep people away from these things. So what's like are is there immediate savings or is it
1: comparable immediately? Yeah. There's immediate savings, especially in the environment we live in today where there are some grants available to support project costs. Mm, right. And so year one, year two, year three, there's immediate savings. And there's also just a, a huge savings in the first year because you avoid buying a new diesel bus. Uh-huh. So you might avoid right. spending $140,000 for a capital purchase. And you've gone to a world where Highland gets paid $30,000 a year. Which includes a vehicle. It includes all the fuel. It includes repair costs. Uh, it includes software and training. And it, so, it's there's cost savings day one, and there's a very strong case that there there will always be cost savings. So this is, a, I mean, this is a naive question, but like you're coming to school districts and
0: saying, "Hey, a, you're going to save money on day one. B, you're going to improve the health of your kids." and your drivers C, you're going to improve general sort of satisfaction and performance who who says no to
1: this <laughs> and, yeah and why uh, does anyone say no to this i ask myself the same question occasionally <laughs> it's uh, almost too good to be true we're, we're at a moment in time where the technology is ready for the task right. and there's a combination of available services and capital and those are coming together in a really nice way but what we're doing, David, is still asking municipalities to buy transportation in a different way. They're accustomed to a capital budget to buy vehicles and an operating budget to run them. And we're asking them to blend them into a subscription. Right. So there is a little bit of a new dynamic, a new purchasing dynamic. And then I would say there's always concern about new technology. And we're still in the early innings of the electric school bus uh, movement. And so there's, uh, I think, a healthy element of skepticism around, will they be reliable? Mm -hmm. And so those are some of the obstacles that we run into. But I would say we very rarely get a flat out no. It's more we just get folks who need to come up to speed. They're on their own educational journey and they need to kick the tires. And so we host a school district almost daily at one of our sites, whether it's Maryland or Colorado or Massachusetts, we're hosting a lot of visitors expressing interest and they're in various places on their buying journey.
0: What about, um, you know, God forbid the risk that Highland goes out of business at some point in the next 15 years, what happens then to these contracts? It's a good
1: question. The vehicles are still there, and the vehicles will still be operated, and the contracts stand independently. We set every contract up in its own entity, Mm. and we fund each individual entity in a way that's appropriate to capitalize the project. If you think about a project, the risk that we go under is really only for the couple months at the very beginning when we're building and delivering. Once we've installed all of our equipment at a customer site and we've delivered all the vehicles, the project entity that we own, but the project entity that serves the customer is simply basically producing profit that goes to pay back the investment. But if um, Highland were to go under, that project entity will still stand and serve the contract until the end of the contract.
0: Got it. So the the maintenance and operations side of things is locked in for the 15-year contract regardless of Highlands' fate.
1: That's a good way to think about it. That's exactly right. And so there's a lot of details behind how that works, but every one of our customers asks the same question you ask, and they get very comfortable because of that dynamic. Right.
0: So as I'm envisioning the country's school districts, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is just wild variety of size of financial wherewithal, the number of buses, the geographical scope of the buses, the weather conditions in which buses operate. So, how standardized can you get this? It seems like there's a there's an that element that's bespoke to every school district that's sort of unavoidable. It's sort of how you know, how similar is what you do from district to district and how much is it
1: kind of customized? There's a few things to unpack there. There's a component around the environment that the project is asked to operate in. Mm-hmm. So whether it be the average temperature by week per year, or the topography, are they going up steep hills and down or is it flat? how many stops all that stuff gets gets boiled down to the sort of the, the operating plans and we build our charging infrastructure and size the batteries and every aspect of a project design depends on those you know key assumptions but we have done this everywhere from scrubbing data from a project in Toke, Alaska, which uh-huh. is arguably the coldest electric school bus in operation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, everybody, as you can imagine, everybody, uh, you know, on, on Twitter, everywhere else, that one of their first questions is, what about cold weather? What about when it's freezing? Blah, blah, blah. What about don't EVs lose range? How do you keep the buses heated when you pick up your first kid? All these questions about cold yeah. weather. So you've dealt with those.
1: Yeah, the the answer is it's actually not that complicated. It's just about planning. I'm sitting here in Beverly, Massachusetts at our headquarters. I'm looking out the window and we're getting dumped on by snow right now. And the buses are out picking kids up. And, it, you know, it's fine. You do lose a little range. It's better to precondition the, the batteries and the, the cabins of the vehicles with some heat before you unplug them. Right. So the vehicles go out pre-warmed mm. with a full tank of uh, gas, so to speak. But that's sort of a, a segment of your question. Uh, the broader question is, can you standardize uh, a product offering here? And the answer is absolutely. That's what we've been working on for the better part of five years. Every project has uh, expertise needed in designing and building a depot. And so you've got... Parameters that you need to solve for, that include topography, temperature range. You've got uh, people who need to be trained. You have uh, investments that need to be made, and you have a utility that you have to interact with, and you have to put all those things through a standardized process so that you deliver reliable, affordable transportation at the end of the day. You've not run across a school bus
0: route that is. Too long or too far to do with
1: electric? Like we have, we've run into a few, but they're very rare. We serve both very rural and very urban customers. You know, in Illinois, we have a contract that's in a very rural, uh, very rural part of the state, and the routes are are over a hundred miles. Mm. That's entirely doable as long as you plan your charging equipment appropriately. But occasionally we see 150, 160, 170-mile day, and the driver doesn't have the time to circle back. And so those are some of the routes that are less appropriate for electric today, but it's less than 5% of the routes. Hmm. What is the range of an electric school bus? With the products that are available today, between 100 and 160 miles. Hmm. Most of the buses we have on the road today have 140 miles of range. Mm-hmm. And should we
0: assume that that's being steadily improved like like everything else? Tell so, I was going to ask about this later, but let's get into it now, just about the sort of manufacturing of the buses themselves. So I'm presuming that among all the many other things you're doing, you're not manufacturing school buses. So where are you getting them and are you ordering I mean, is there like a standard offering that you're just buying in bulk from some manufacturer or is it possible to customize them? And if so, how much? Like what's the – in terms of the physical buses and how you procure them, how does
1: that work? We do not manufacture buses. You are correct. (laughs) We we buy them from the top-tier manufacturers that have electric products available. Thomas built buses we buy from bluebird, we buy from ic, all of the major us domestic manufacturers that have electric product available. We essentially buy one of two or three formats. There's a type c, there's a type d which is a little bigger but a shorter wheelbase and a type a which is a smaller bus. And while there's lots of bells and whistles you can add, safety features, you know, those can all be specced by each individual school. It is fundamentally the same uh, foundational vehicle, just with more cameras or seat belts or whatever, mm. you know, someone might add on. So we do buy in bulk for a couple of those categories as part of our procurement strategy. And so we end up working really closely with the manufacturers, not only in terms of the features we need to operate the vehicles efficiently, but also the feedback loop. What are the things we found that are tricky for drivers, little quirks? Yeah, I'm very curious
0: about those. Like what do uh, people who have road tested these things now and there's, you know, like driving school bus routes every single day is a real (laughs) – a real stress test. It really is. What do they find in terms, not just of like, you know, drivetrain or whatever, but sort of those bells and whistles? Like, what What do they and do they not want in, in those terms?
1: Well, first, I would say the drivers almost universally absolutely love them. And, and I, this is for the same reason that everyone loves it when they when they switch to an EV, presumably? And it's a lot of the same reasons, right? The vehicles have better torque. Yeah. They're completely silent. Mm. The braking is a, a real pleasure. You really just take your foot off the accelerator and a regenerative braking system slows the vehicle down at, right. a, at a, an even pace. It's a very calming experience <laughs> <laughs> and it puts more power back in the batteries while it does that. Right. And so it takes a little bit of training and a little bit of practice to get the hang of it. But the drivers love it. And it eliminates the wear and tear on the brakes. But I would say, David, the biggest highlight I would throw out there is because the vehicle is so quiet, no engine rumbling, the kids in the back don't have to yell over the engine rumbling to talk (laughs) to each other. And so it's just a a quieter uh, drive to school, the whole experience. Yes, my my memories of school buses
0: in, in my youth definitely involve a lot of noise, a lot of screaming.
1: Absolutely. And I would throw out one other just anecdote, which is, while the drivers absolutely love the vehicles, there's lots of little quirks that we found, especially in the first couple of years of operating, fewer and fewer today, but little software quirks where if your bus is idling for more than a minute, it will shut it shut off in the early iterations. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you know, flip the switch and turn it back on. And since there's no engine rumbling, you don't know that it's shut off. And so that was a little inconvenience that had to be sorted out with the manufacturers. But little things like that are pieces of feedback that were, I would say, weekly, monthly for the first year and a half. And now it's more like quarterly. Mm.
0: Also, in terms of the physical buses, um, you know, in the EV space, there's this sort of division between sort of Legacy manufacturers that are trying to move to EVs, and the thought is, among some people, I think probably fewer people these days than before, but the thought is among some people that a company like Tesla, which is just starting on EVs from the beginning and designing an EV from the ground up rather than trying to sort of adapt old you know, existing chassis and things like that, is going to produce ultimately a better vehicle that in the long term will be – cheaper. Is there a Tesla of of school buses or of buses generally, or are these all legacy manufacturers?
1: Lion Electric is a Canadian company that's the closest to what you describe in this sector. Hmm. And they uh, were the first manufacturer to put an electric school bus on the road a number of years ago. They've had a lot of success in California, and uh, they've got the lion's share of the market in Canada. Uh, and they're focused on other areas too, other categories of medium and heavy duty, municipal and other transportation, trucking and busing. And uh, they are very, you know, Lion's very formidable uh, competitor for the incumbent OEMs. I think one of the areas that is really unique to school busing is. There's very tight relationships with the regional dealers, Mm. not only on buying the vehicles, but just the ongoing support that's needed to keep them on the road. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an area that is harder to break through that network without your own. Right. Whereas Tesla had the, you know, the benefit of consumers not having quite as tight of a relationship with their dealers, (laughs) even loathing (laughs) their dealers. Yeah, that's right. In
0: many cases, (laughs) I think that's right. (laughs) Final uh, hardware question. What kind of batteries do these buses use? Are they all using LFP batteries?
1: There's a few technologies, but they're, for the most part, lithium-ion batteries. Mm. And this is not like, do you not get parents or school administrators
0: worrying about battery fires? I mean, I know they're rare, but you know obviously this in this setting you wouldn't want to take any chances
1: i agree that has not been a key area of concern for parents or school administrators you know we, we do get the question occasionally but it hasn't been a key area of concern we own a lot of thomas julies which is the thomas built electric school bus and they are powered by a powertrain built by Proterra. Proterra is a domestic manufacturer. They make batteries specifically engineered for the medium and heavy duty transportation sector. And the safety requirements and standards in that category of vehicle are such that Proterra had to do a tremendous amount of safety work. And, you know, they are one provider. Cummins has a platform as well. There are others, but our opinion is the industry's done a pretty good job of designing, you know, the, the right safety precautions and designing their equipment in the, in the right way to just to make them really safe. Yeah.
0: Okay. There's a whole set of questions I want to ask about utilities and your interaction with them. Sure. Um, putting aside for now, fancy talking to the grid and all this kind of stuff just in terms of going into a utility area and installing what amounts to really substantial new load and not only substantial new load but load that you know when it's running full out is really high you know really high level of power involved i just am assuming that you have to tell utilities, <laughs> ask utilities, interact with utilities in some way, just if you're going to show up and and do this. What's the, is that accurate?
1: Yes, that's accurate. Uh, David, I would say it's somewhere in between ask and tell, <laughs> because the reality is the utilities, distribution utilities have a mission, which is to serve the public with, you know, electrical service wherever needed. You know, you don't build a new hospital and the utility doesn't say, sorry, you can't do it. <laughs> right. It just comes down to timeline and cost. And so we do need a ton of power. We have five sites right around Washington, D.C. and Maryland. And each site has a five megawatt interconnection Jeez. to charge electric school buses. So 25 megawatts in a very small geographic footprint. I mean, so that that's like grids are going to have to
0: plan around that. I'm like, I'm curious if you ever gone to a, uh, an area where the utility says like, we would love to help you with this, but right now we just don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the lines. We don't have the ability to accommodate this much new power. Is that, have you ever run into that?
1: We have. And uh, a couple quick thoughts. The first is it's always possible. It just comes down to timeline and cost. And so it, it's an exercise in doing our homework Right. So we we do all the work. I would advise anyone before you talk to your utility, you do your homework. What does the distribution feeder have available on it? Like what's the amount of power you can draw today? This is available information that can be looked up. Then it's about figuring out how difficult it would be to upgrade the service if it truly needed to be upgraded. You know, how many miles of, you know, three phase have to be run from, you know, the nearest point of connection. And then it's looking at the landscape, and that is everything from the existing rate tariffs to the Public Utility Commission to the politicians. And there's more and more support in more places for electrifying fleets, electrifying everything from passenger cars to garbage trucks, right? And so there's the political will is there to support investment rate-baseable investment in EV infrastructure. And it's about threading the needle between all those dynamics and coming up with a plan. There there are places where we want three megawatts of power, but we'll, we'll settle for one and a half hmm. because we can get one and a half in a year right. and we can work on the next one and a half over the next four years. And plug the gap with some stationary storage or some other form of a charging strategy. And so I would argue it's really about interacting with the right people at the utility to come up with a plan that leverages the utility's assets and capabilities with the needs of the fleet. And it gets married up by the equipment that's available to sit in the middle. Yeah. Have you run into a
0: situation yet where you had to wait, where you had, like, people ready to sign contracts, but you had to wait for years, two years, three years, four years, whatever, to
1: let the utility prepare? We signed our contract with Montgomery County Public Schools in February of 2021, and we promised to have the first depot up and running in August that summer, which is lightning fast. Yeah. But we promised to have three more depots up and running 18 months later because we knew they were going to be slower. And then we we didn't promise to have the fifth depot up and running until the summer of 2024. Hmm. So we, we knew that one would take three years. And it will take us three years. We're in the middle of it now. Hmm. And that was a, exactly a, a, a function of those local dynamics, how to get the power, how to get it efficiently, how to get it affordably and how to work with the utility to do that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I would
0: want to be in a business where I'm waiting on utilities to do anything
1: yeah. <laughs> to, as a general matter. It's an inevitability here. But once yeah. you're up and running, the, the, first of all, for the most part, utilities have been pretty darn good partners. Hmm. Everyone has this in their roadmap. And so more often than not, they're kind of excited when someone comes and says, hey, we've got a real project. Let's work on it together. Beyond this, just the
0: basics, um, Once you have a fleet of electric school buses, you have a distributed set of very large batteries, which are sitting unused most hours of the day. Uh, So I guess two questions. One is about grid-to-vehicle communication, i.e., do you time the charging of these vehicles in coordination with the utility in some way. So I heard two things there. Well, the first is time to charging, which I think of as sort of grid communicating with vehicles. And sure. then the second is vehicle to grid, which is, you know, vehicles occasionally discharging electricity into the grid when the grid needs it. My sense from talking to people in this space is that just timing your charging is relatively easy first step and that vehicle to grid communication is a little bit more complicated and is not, you know, not all utilities are ready for it, but just sort of tell me like what's, to what extent are you getting into grid services?
1: We are absolutely doing both. And you're correct that simply timing your charging, we view as table stakes. Mm. You sort of need to be doing that to run an efficient operation. Mm. I would say that, we coordinate that with the utilities a little bit, but the utilities don't get deeply involved in interacting with customers on topics like that today. Hmm. What they do is they push out programs. They say, we have a time of use rate tariff. Right. You customer choose if you want to change your charging schedule based on the rate tariff. And so we are doing that very actively actively. The equipment that's available today, it doesn't come fully ready to allow customer choice around charging times. You really have to do it in more of a manual way. We've had to build a software stack with all these controls to do it in a reliable format. But I do think that's an area where the tech is getting better and better. And if if you do it right, you will save on your power costs. No joke. That's a lot. If you look in places like San Diego, if you charge at the wrong times, you'll trip demand charges and without getting into all the details, your bill can skyrocket. And so charging is really important to get right because it just comes down to dollars and cents.
0: And so at this point, you have got software integrated into the buses such that the driver can just plug in whenever
1: without worrying about it and the software does the timing? That's exactly right. The software allows us to control our charging times and our charging rates from our remote operating center. And the software creates that connective tissue between us and our equipment in the field and helps us to scale and helps us to Assess uh, fault codes earlier. Vehicle health. Look at trends. Collect data, but ultimately control charging in a very dynamic way. And you feel like that's you've got that relatively down. We've got that fully down. We do have a partner. It's a company, company called Synop, a software company, and we've done a deeply integrated, you know, commercial partnership with them that's many, many, many years long. And then on top of them, we have our own systems and processes that uh, effectively ensure that the all the hardware speaks and allows the software to do its job. So it's a full tech stack of software and hardware, and it's all got to be stitched together in the right ways to uh, to work smoothly. Interesting.
0: And so what about then... Vehicle-to-grid, I am assuming that that's rarer, (laughs) that that there are only some utilities that can accommodate that. Are there any yet? Is that a a real thing yet, or is that still like a gleam in in people's eye?
1: It's a real thing, but today it is binary in that either the utility has something you can do or it doesn't. And we have Vehicle-to-Grid up and running on Uh, about a third of our projects today. And in most of those cases, the vehicle to grid activity is in its simplest form. We're charging the buses full during the overnight hours in the summer, July and August. And we charge overnight because there's lots of power available. It's very inexpensive and the grid has it available. And then late in the afternoons, the next day, from three o'clock to six o'clock, four o'clock to seven o'clock, we will actually export all the power and the batteries from the buses back to the grid. Hmm. And it's because the grid needs the power and they're willing to pay for it. And that's, it's very lucrative and so helps drive down our cost to serve school districts. Yeah. When you say lucrative, I mean, Compared to
0: saving seventy-five percent on on your charging costs, is it that lucrative? Like ha, ha, where is it relative to just sort of timed charging? Are you are you making comparable
1: money offering these grid services? It's more lucrative than simply saving. Just to put, you know, some round numbers around it. If you charge at the wrong time in San Diego, you could get a five thousand dollar utility bill for the month for one bus. If you charge in a smart way, that might be $1,000, right? A lot less expensive. Our vehicle-to-grid income on a per-bus basis in parts of New England is $12,000 a year.
0: No shit.
1: Yes. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a (laughs) lot. Now, you have some equipment that you have to invest in to do it, so it's not all profit. But what it does is we pass dollar for dollar, we pass that money on to the school district. We underwrite to it as we invest in equipment to serve them. And then uh, we operate the vehicle to grid program so that we can make it more affordable for schools. And I'm, I'm convinced that we're in the very early days, but in five years, this will be happening in more places than it's not, and will be a meaningful contributor to Eating away at that two hundred thousand dollar vehicle premium I described in your, you know, your opening right. questions. Well, also
0: presumably, I mean, do you use that to lower? I mean, is your subscription fee standard everywhere, or do you is it lower some places than others based on grid circumstances?
1: Yeah, our subscription fee is different for every opportunity. Each mm-hmm. customer account might have different costs and different expenses, but. Uh, we use that income to lower the subscription fee to the customer. And there are cases where the customer is saving 20, 25% wow. compared to their diesel fleet operation. And the vehicle to grid is that extra savings.
0: Interesting. Vehicles to grid is one thing. There's also, of course, if you have this huge set of batteries, what about using them during blackouts for backup power? for schools or community centers or things like that? Is that, uh, is that on your radar?
1: Absolutely. You know, as more and more electric school buses come online, they are, uh, you know, increasingly becoming a source of resiliency for local communities. Uh, we, we call this vehicle to community. Mm. Very much describes the activity taking place. The buses have very energy-dense batteries, And they happen to be energy-dense batteries sitting on wheels. If you've got a community that has lost power, you may need to keep cold storage going at a local high school. You may need to give people the ability to charge cell phones. You may need to set up air conditioners. Absolutely. Hospitals. Absolutely. These vehicles can be anywhere in a community in a short amount of time. And they can deliver power into buildings if they've been set up with the right equipment. We're building We're building out these capabilities for a number of our customers. and I actually think it's maybe one of the most exciting, most promising dynamics that is a very much an untold story to date. but it's, it's just really exciting to make an electrified fleet that much more of an asset to its community. Yeah,
0: huge resiliency advantage there. Have you, you know, because people say like the the new Ford F-150, you know, people will tell you like that can can power a medium-sized suburban house fully for like three days on that battery. I don't think people appreciate how big these batteries are. And that's just one truck. I assume the battery on a bus is much bigger. So this is not a small amount of dispatchable power you've got in your
1: hands in the case of a blackout. That's exactly right. Our electrified site in Bethesda, Maryland, when it's fully operational, which is a couple more years, there'll be more vehicles arriving, but you know, that site will be able to deliver 5 megawatts of power in a resiliency format for a period of a little more than 3 hours or it can deliver half a megawatt for many, many days. Right. Yeah. That's a large hospital right there.
0: Yeah. Uh, wild. Um, one other thing about utilities before I, I forget, um, I was reading there was a battle in uh, Virginia, I think, recently. I think it was Dominion, the utility, wanted to get into owning electric school buses, owning and operating. I think maybe more or less along the lines of what
1: you guys are trying to do. Does that make any sense to you? it does that's well described and it's pretty accurate they uh, dominion launched a program a couple of years ago where they proposed owning electric school buses and the charging equipment and basically providing them to schools public schools in virginia and they proposed rate basing all of those investments mm. so you know paid for by the On your electricity bill, if you're a resident in the state of Virginia. And the case they made was that this is part of the electricity ecosystem. And with the batteries and the buses, we can deliver reliability services. There are varying formats of that being proposed at utilities all across the country. Interesting. But in very, very few cases, does the utility propose to actually rate-base the bus? Mm. And so Dominion was challenged by policymakers in Virginia. And the policymakers ended up saying, you cannot do this in any sort of longer-term programmatic format. It may be that they're going to try again. Was it just sort of like
0: generalized hostility towards utilities, or was there some specific uh, reason why they thought it couldn't work?
1: I don't think so. I think they're just uh, the case was made that the vehicle itself is not something that the average electricity purchaser, right, the average homeowner, mm-hmm. should be paying for. That's not a fair expense to pass on to the ratepayer. It's something that should be passed on to the schools. Now, if the batteries have value and you can isolate the value to help balancing the system, then maybe that's an acceptable investment. But I think Dominion was early on in this movement and will, I would expect, come back with a modified version of their plan that uh, probably has a higher likelihood of success. And that would be
0: competition to you, would it not? It's the same, some of the same services.
1: It is and it isn't. They would be providing... Uh, equipment and agreeing to pay for some of that equipment, but that's not much different than a grant, which just pays for some of the equipment. Dominion does not come with a suite of services to basically ensure the fleet gets built on time and operates reliably. Right. They're not going to build a
0: depot or or repair school buses.
1: That's right. And if your charging station doesn't work, are you going to call Dominion you're not going to call Dominion. <laughs> so I, I think businesses like ours have, you know, a natural uh, ability to partner with utilities in any format that the utility shows up in. Uh, we can plug the gap with additional capital and with services that ultimately benefit reliability and cost certainty to schools.
0: Okay. So then let's wrap up maybe with a final kind of question or, or, or set of questions. Um, so we've got, The business model here available, it's advantageous for most school districts just on a pure cost basis to say nothing of not pumping diesel fumes directly into kids' lungs and deafening them with jet engines as they get to and from school. Um, And I'm a parent in a school district and I am taken by this and want to advocate for it. Who where, (laughs) where do I go to whom do I direct my strongly worded email? Like what, where am I? um, What's the best way for people to try to organize and advocate for
1: this? I would send your email to three recipients and put them all on the same email. (laughs) The first recipient is a board member, a member of the school board who is uh, an advocate for this type of activity. The second individual would be a chief business officer or an assistant superintendent, someone who's typically tasked with uh, the operating side of the house and ultimately responsible for finance and contracts. And then the third would be uh, the transportation director, whoever's running the current fleet. And what what you do there is you get everyone on the same page. They all hear your message a board member can be an advocate and push that message down, which often creates more uh, willingness to take a deeper look faster. A business officer can get comfortable with the risk and the cost, and a transportation director can ground it all in the reality of, will this work to pick kids up and drop them off back at home? And so that would be be my advice, David. You know, this seems like
0: a great and very obvious step for school districts to take. Like, everybody, we need to decarbonize regardless. Kids' health is particularly important. This model overcomes the upfront cost barrier. But what if you receive pushback along the lines of the following? We're still early days in both electric school buses and in models like this, business models like this. And it's very likely that a few years of experience are going to scale a lot of things up bring a lot of costs down, and that the subscription fee will likely be lower in three to five years than it is today, why shouldn't we just wait until the market is more fully baked?
1: There's a decision that has to happen every single year to buy vehicles to replace the oldest vehicles that effectively need to go to the scrapyard. If a school district has to buy 10 new vehicles, they have an inflection point that is immediate. Right. They can buy diesels or they can go electric either on their own or with a model like Highlands model. And so it's less about will the cost come down? Sure, the cost might come down for the 10 we need to buy next year and the 10 we need to buy the year after that and the year after that but that doesn't change the fact that we have to buy 10 vehicles right now. Right. And if it's cheaper, arguably cheaper, with a very, very strong argument to be made that it will always be cheaper and it's definitively cheaper for the next five to seven years, uh, then that tends to win the day with a business officer. And you really just have to get comfortable that the technology is ready to meet the routes and the reliability standards of your district. And there's enough projects out there at scale that uh, we think prove that in a very strong uh, way but the last thing I would say is that's why Highland exists mm-hmm. because you're not you don't own the vehicles you as the school district are in a performance-based contract and so Highland only gets paid if the vehicle operates by the mile if the vehicle stops operating, There's an inconvenience, but the school is not out any capital or any additional money. And so we are truly incentivized as their partner to keep the fleet operating smoothly, fully fueled every day for a pretty long time.
0: Right. And it's in your financial interest to maximize performance with the lowest Possible budget. So that's right. All, all that sort of constant effort of looking for economies and looking for improvements and everything else, that's such a mental time load that is being offloaded.
1: Uh, we agree. And, and David, it's not that the model is new to schools, it's new for school buses, but schools have been buying energy efficiency equipment under energy savings contracts for decades. They're very accustomed to that. Business model within you know the, within the operations of their their plant, uh, their facilities, and this is no different. The one thing I always say about this
0: model of subscription rather than buying, and this is true you know across product categories, is if you're just subscribing to your equipment, you know if a new cooler, better school bus comes <laughs> into the world, it's to Highlands' advantage to buy it and switch it out. Unlike if you buy a diesel bus you're just sort of stuck with the diesel bus for whatever it is 10 20 30 years you can see continuous improvements w- when you're on a subscription model you don't have to buy every new model of bus like someone else is going to do that for you so you you'll likely see improvements in hardware and service over the course of the subscription
1: that's exactly right and I would also say that our customers if you speak with any of our customers, they would say that this whole experience is an upgrade. We give them better insights into their fleet. We provide a technology platform that is state-of-the-art and robust. Uh, they have better information than they've ever had on where the buses are located, state of charge, you know, the health of the vehicle, lots of analytics and other tools. And when, something goes wrong. Uh, we have people there and we're on the phone and we're, you know, opening up power cabinets and solving problems very quickly. And the whole experience is as you described an upgrade. Well, uh, this is awesome.
0: (laughs) You know, uh, Volts listeners know that I have enormous enthusiasm for, uh, electrified postal vehicles and electrified school buses like those are my two favorite things in the entire world to talk about so i'm so thrilled a that you're out there doing what you're doing and b that you came on and uh took all this time with us so thanks very
1: much yeah david i i love your podcast i love what you're doing and i uh, was very glad that you were interested in hearing more from highland about uh, our experiences and what we're seeing in the market so really appreciate you having us on and look forward to hearing it live thanks
0: Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.